Right, so <clears throat> yesterday's, uh, last night's talk, uh, a bit of an introduction to emptiness, and giving, uh, maybe perhaps, I hope, giving some sense of the kind of extent of the depth of these teachings, of what emptiness means in its kind of fullness and in its depth. And so I want to begin tonight kind of um, wading into that ocean of depth slowly. Uh, and talked yesterday briefly about, for convenience, the division of two kinds of emptiness, the emptiness of the personal self and the emptiness of phenomena. So, in a way, there's only really one emptiness, but, but break it down for pedagogical purposes. And this is uh, not my division, it's, it's from the tradition. So... I want to start with the personal self, and that's actually mostly what we're going to be working on. You can't really separate it. It's mostly what we're going to be working on um, for the first ten days, maybe, or a week or something. The personal self. So, it can be kind of a truism, uh, something that's tossed off in spiritual circles, in some spiritual circles, that the the self is the problem, the ego is the problem, and, and very easy for people to kind of agree with that. And it's the ego that brings sense of separation and sense of duality, etc. But it's actually quite rare for a really penetrating investigation, a deep investigation of what that really means. And, and how it's a problem, and exactly what the nature of that self is. So in Buddha Dharma, in the teachings of the Buddha, we're not actually trying to destroy the self. Okay, that's, that's actually really important. We're not trying to destroy the self. We're not trying to dissolve the self. We're not trying to merge it with some kind of cosmic uh, goo, uh, or substance or something. We're wanting to understand the self, understand the nature of the self, and what that means, of course, is understand that it's empty, and the fullness of understanding what that means. Now let's take a step backwards, actually, because for the Buddha, the, the primary thing was suffering and the end of suffering. As he always said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. What that means in that statement is that the question of self and the ways we relate to the self are actually secondary to the question of suffering. And so suffering and the ending suffering is the primary question, not self and, the en- and, and seeing through self. So as I said at one point uh, in one of the talks, emptiness is a tool. So this practice we'll be introducing tomorrow of non-identification, letting go of the self, they are tools, and one tool, or a few tools, among many. So, the Buddha's question is, what gives rise to suffering? What increases suffering, and what, what releases suffering? Now, sometimes it's appropriate to, to look in terms of the self to answer that question. Other times, um, it's, it's not to do with the self. Sometimes we need to let go of the self, and sometimes we actually need to pick up and use the language of the self. Okay, So sometimes it's totally appropriate and totally helpful to see things in terms of self and, and to use that language and that way of seeing. So, you know, if, if I'm a friend with, with someone here and, or in a relationship of some kind and we have a disagreement, we have an argument or a difficulty and I say to this person, I say, oh, well... Uh, there's no self, so it doesn't really matter. Um, probably the person will punch me on the nose. You know, it's not an appropriate, it's not even a very compassionate response. I'm not. That situation needs to be addressed on on the language self. How do you feel? How do I feel? What's happened here between us as two selves, for the most part? So in communication, in um, Taking responsibility as well, which is an interesting one. It's like to feel in life that I am responsible uh, at some level for my choices, for what I cultivate, for what I let go of, for my ethical choices in particular. 
So that's actually, that takes a sense of self, and it's totally appropriate at a certain level. And to discard that completely would, would really be a mistake, because then one would, would, or has the danger of discarding ethics and discarding a sense of responsibility in life. Okay? So there's many, many situations uh, and times in life where the language of self and the view of self is really, really appropriate and the most helpful view in terms of that question of what's going to lead to suffering and what's going to free us from suffering. Remember, that's the, the overarching question that overarches the whole of the Dharma. Overarches the whole of the Dharma. And so nowadays, uh, many psychotherapies, and there are many different kinds of psychotherapy nowadays, uh, often talk in the language of self. Not all of them, but m- many of them do. And, you know, that can be extremely helpful. And I, for one, have felt very helped by that uh, uh, process and that languaging in, in the past. And, you know, if I reflect on my process in therapy years ago, there's, there was a real learning about what my needs were in different situations. I'd been unaware <coughs> for that took a sense of languaging in terms of self, a sense of seeing in terms of self. And again, in terms of communicating and learning com- to communicate oneself to another self. Learning in a way what you could say to reparent oneself. Now, oftentimes that we need that. You know, we emerge into adulthood with a need to, I mean, not to blame our parents overly, but sometimes we, we need, there are aspects that need reparenting inside. This is all within the realm of seeing in terms of self. What is it to be able to give oneself tenderness and kindness, to offer that to oneself, to hold oneself in tenderness and kindness? What is it to address the emotions and hold the emotions of one, learn to work with one's emotions in, in the language of self? And what is it to cherish oneself, to celebrate oneself, to celebrate one's uniqueness and one's beauty? To me, that's actually really, really important skill, if that's the right word, it's not really the right word, to, for a human being to be able to do. Are we, do we see our beauty, you know, our unique beauty, our unique manifestation? Do we cherish ourselves? So we need to learn how to do that, and that's in the realm of self, some of it at least. And follow on, you know, with, a lot, again, a lot of psychotherapists, a lot, a lot of time talk in terms of stories, and the story of my life, and my journey, and where I've been, and where I've come from, where it's going. And this is very interesting. Oftentimes in insight meditation, we talk about letting go of the story. And the encouragement with mindfulness is to let go of the story, and to come into a kind of bare relationship with the actual felt experience of our existence. But again, story can be helpful or it can be not helpful. And this is a question we need to ask ourselves. Rather than totally dismissing story, which is perhaps uh, not helpful and, and unrealistic, when is the story helpful and what kind of story of myself, of my life, is helpful? If we, sometimes it seems we're imprisoned or locked into a story of ourselves and our life. But actually, one begins to get a sense that it's malleable. The story we tell ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves about our life, are actually shapeable and malleable. They're not set in stone. So it's interesting, you know, reflecting a little while ago on the Buddha, and he could have uh, set out on his journey and told himself the story, uh, or and other people the story, yeah, it's really, it's really sad. My mum died when I was a week old, and my father was really controlling, and he wouldn't let me uh, follow my desires, and he kept wanting me to follow in his, uh, you know, the family business and be a king. And uh, then I was practicing with some other yogis, but they couldn't keep up with me, and they, so I was kind of on my own, and uh, now I'm really lonely. And he could have voiced it that way, but interestingly, he didn't, or at least it hasn't come down in tradition. <laughs> he didn't. Um, but he does, at times, voice a story. And he voices it, in, in his words, in, in terms of the noble search. And he places himself as a hero, a seeker, sometimes, oftentimes, as a warrior. A war- it's not a language in our 
times we're that comfortable with, but he plays with the seeker, the, the warrior, the, um, the hero, you know. And at times, and in communication with others, and the way he saw himself, that was obviously very helpful. It gave a sense of real motivation and journey and inspiration, and direction, aspiration, etc., and then he was able to let go of that at times in meditation, let go of the story and enter into another mode, and I'll come back to that. So we can, to a certain extent, choose the story, to a certain extent, and also choose our identity. So this is interesting too, I was talking with someone the other day, and she's giving up her job, and a quite prestigious job, and da-da-da, and... Uh, Seeing the identification with the role, how easily, we're talking about self-view and identification, how easily we identify with the roles we're in, whether it's a job or whether it's a parent or a uh, spouse or this or that, identification with role. And she was immediately thinking about letting go of all identification. And actually, she's wanting to do a lot of long-term practice. How about re re picking up another identity as a seeker, similar to the Buddha. Instead of jettisoning it all, maybe there's something in our identity as a seeker that's provisionally very helpful. And having an identity like that actually begins to reorder a lot of stuff in the life, priorities in particular. So, very easy when the identity is of a certain kind, for certain kind of priorities to fit around that uh, identity, for example, around security and, and money issues, etc. If one re rechooses the identity, it may be that, for instance, having less money means a different thing. Maybe uh, what success and failure begin to mean a different thing because we're actually identified with something different. You understand? Does that make sense? Anyway, if I look at my story, the story that I'm believing, and I watch it over time, often this takes decades, you actually see that the story one tells oneself about a certain time in the life changes dependent on the mood of the moment, for a start, and also dependent on what, in the present moment of time, we are considering significant or important. So it's interesting for myself, I've done a few different sort of jobs and uh, work over the years. And that begins to colour how I'm seeing the past and what I extract from that as part of the story. So I could never extract my whole life as part of the story. To construct a story that's tellable to others and myself, I need to take this part and that part. I need to be selective. And I'm selective dependent on a number of factors. But the real question, well, one of the, another real question with all this is, how much am I believing the story? And if we take it at a slightly more subtle level, how much am I believing or stuck in the self-definitions that I have of myself, in my self-definitions? So this is something we really want to investigate as human beings, as practitioners. Investigate the conclusions, the definitions, the assumptions, the images we have of ourselves. A lot of the times they're fully conscious. A lot of the times they're just on the edge of what's conscious. And we need to actually shine the light of awareness and actually expose what they are. What am I believing, concluding, uh, seeing about myself? Defining How am I defining myself? Because to the degree that I define myself and believe it, I'm binding myself and my sense of self, my sense of possibility, my sense of growth, my sense of creativity. And we do this to ourselves and we also do it to others. So we define ourselves and we define another he, she, like that. That's how they are. Or in the sort of co-defining of self and other, we measure ourselves. How do I measure up with you? Oh, he, she's way ahead of me much better than me, much prettier, much this, this or that. Or I'm better, or we're the same. And jealousy comes in, and fear comes in, and infatuation with another, projection, 
competing, the whole competitive mind. This is all bred uh, out of the self-definition, this attachment, this being stuck in self-definitions. And when there is that in, in, in the self-other dynamic, uh, gestalt, whatever you want to call it, uh, that breeds a climate of fear and, and uh, threat, a felt threat, almost inevitably. <clears throat> so, as practitioners, we want to start, A, noticing, like I said, really exposing to, very clearly to consciousness the ways we define ourselves, the images, the conclusions, and then begin puncturing that those definitions and images uh, as much as we can, puncturing them, uh, making holes in them, seeing through them. So to notice, notice the kind of thoughts you have when it's I am dot dot dot, or I'm always, or I'm never. Beware of those words particularly, always and never. But the I am thoughts, I am da 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 da. And sometimes, a very nice way of practicing is, you notice an I am thought, whether in practice or just walking around about the day, turn it around, am I? Am I? Dot, dot, dot. So just begin to bring uh, either a gentle question or quite probing, questioning, challenging of the I am thought. Am I that? Second possibility, one of the beautiful things about being on retreat is we can begin to see the gaps in the, the definitions we have of ourselves. So I might have a definition of I'm an angry person, I'm a fearful person, I'm a cold-hearted person, I'm a loving person, I'm a passionate person, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a whatever it is. Because a retreat is a time where we've actually got nothing else to do but watch inwardly, and over the days a kind of more continuity of mindfulness comes, just by virtue of the continuity of mindfulness, begin seeing gaps in, in the self-definition and seeing that they're not, it's not always the case that I'm angry. It's not always the case that I'm fearful. It's not always the case that I'm passionate, warm-hearted, cold-hearted, uh, spaced out, whatever it is. If that was really who I am, which is what the self-definition often has that implication, it would actually always have to be the case. I would have to be that way all the time. So looking in this way with the continuity of mindfulness and seeing it's not always the case, puncturing it, putting gaps in it. So a little bit like, and this is a theme we'll be returning to, it's a little bit like the mind loves to... Did you play this, um, do these drawing games when you were a kid, dot to dot? Did, did you make the drawings? You have these dots and you draw, and then you say, oh wow, it's a... you know, who knows what. <laughs> um, the mind does that with experience. You get a bit of a bit of a moment of this and a bit of a time of that, and it connects the dots and gives whatever it is some solidity. In this case, our sense of self or our definition of self. And we want to expose that practice and expose the seeming solidity for something that's actually not that solid. So we notice as well. How, let's say, for instance, a person thinks, I, I'm, a, I'm a passionate person, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm, my nature is I'm passionate, or I'm, or I'm cold-hearted, or whatever it is. And with this dot-to-dot -dot process, it can seem that, let's say I feel passion, or whatever it is I'm defining myself, or coldness, if that's the case for 10% of the time, through this distortion of perception, it actually seems like it's, it's the way 70 or 90% of the time. You actually have to notice how the, the whole thing gets magnified and distorted. We also notice with self-definitions that we tend to have different ones at different times, and even opposite ones, which, how could they both possibly be true? They don't even agree with each other. And yet when we're in one, we're totally convinced that's uh, how we are, who we are. Which is the real one? Now, we do this, interestingly, socially as well. So we're seeing a lot, obviously, in, in the silence here. But we do it socially. Sometimes we repeat these definitions, not only to ourselves, but to others in, in social context. I'm so da-da-da-da-da. I'm always da-da-da. And we say it out loud to others. Or if we're not saying it, we're kind of uh, presenting it in some way, which might be quite subtle. 
Now, sometimes, amazingly, we even do that with negative self-definitions. Sometimes people have a kind of endearingly negative self... It's a very English thing, this. Uh, to have an endearingly negative self-definition. As if some, somehow... <laughs> it's, it's a strange thing. So, you know, I'm so... I'm hopelessly unspontaneous, or I'm this or, or whatever it is. And it's kind of... It's, it's kind of got a cuteness to it, but one wonders, why is that going on? Sometimes, unfortunately, people even do it with very painful self-definitions. Keep putting it out there. It's not, there's nothing endearing. It's actually very painful to the person and to everyone. Maybe it's partly because of the familiarity, the familiarity of a self-definition and the familiarity of the context. So a lot about the self, we're talking about the sense of self, a lot of it's uh, how to put it, it's contextual, it's relational, it's social. So a self is a self in relationship to other selves. And there's some, somehow the self, the sense of self, is embedded socially, it's embedded in the context. And what we notice uh, as practitioners very early on in practice, is that we bring a lot of this to the meditation, we bring a lot of it to practice. And how easy it is for the sense of self and the kind of agendas of self to hijack the practice a little bit. And we're suddenly, or maybe, not even suddenly, but wanting to improve the self through practice, or wanting to make the self, uh, to get a more perfect self in some way. So in a way, practice is a microcosm. It's looking at our life patterns under a magnifying glass. Now, of course, we see a, a lot of the patterns that we see in life, we see them in practice. The same patterns are going to show up, a lot of them anyway, in meditation as they do in life. So it was interesting, Abby's question this morning was really uh, beautiful, I thought, in highlighting some of what self can do in relation to this. It's, um, this sense of, let's say, bliss one time in meditation or well-being, etc. And, and it's not to pinpoint Abby at all, it's just to say this is what selves do. That's a really, really beautiful question. So, And here's some bliss, let's say, or joy or whatever it is. And it's almost like we could just enjoy that or we could take it to mean something about the self. And so, somehow we'd rather take it to mean something about the self often than enjoy it. It's interesting. We see this more commonly with the opposite, with the hindrances. And I said that in the talk about samadhi. Here it is not going well. What does it mean about me? We make the self-conclusion out of something. Self-conclusion. Now, oftentimes it's negative, but it will be positive too. And it's, it's almost like we're infatuated with, addicted to making things mean something about the self. Making things mean something about the self. A characteristic quality or activity of the self is that it's always self-referencing. It's always self-referencing everything. Everything has to mean something about the self. Not everything, but a lot. Now, in Dharma practice, uh, what's w with all that, what I've just been talking about, it's very, very common uh, to encounter the inner critic, this sort of inner voice or inner personality almost that is always haranguing oneself and harassing oneself and it's never good enough and always finding fault and being picky, etc., judging. This is so common uh, now, it's so common in our culture. It's not that everyone has it, but it's incredibly common. Um, I actually don't feel I have time to talk about it tonight, but just to, to highlight, just very briefly, um, when you open the original discourses of the Buddha, the original suttas, you come across a lot of language in terms of striving and you know, uh, really going for it kind of thing. We don't often use that language nowadays in Western culture, uh, at least in these Dharma circles, because oftentimes it just bumps straight into the inner critic. It just, it just goes completely into the program and the domain of the inner critic and is interpreted that way and never, we never see ourselves as doing enough. You, you understand? Um, so very, very common. And this is, I just want to spend two minutes on this. I actually think it's very interesting, but... Um, it's, 
Not really a tangent, but it's, it's interesting. This is something endemic to our culture. As I said, not everyone has it. It's actually endemic to our culture. Um, I don't know if it was always that way in Western culture. And something happened uh, around the time of the Renaissance, actually, um, that the personality, the individual, became more important. So we live now in a culture of the individual uh, in many respects. And so the sense of self, the sense of this personality self is very much at the forefront of our consciousness and very much at the forefront of what we consider important. The roots of that are actually in the Renaissance and the rise of the individual in the collective consciousness and uh, the, the, the decrease of religiosity and sacredism in, in the culture and the rise of secularism. It's actually very interesting. I don't have time to get into it. But. So we live and breathe a kind of air around... Uh, personality and in individual, uh, the culture of the individual. And we, we, all of us were born into that, so much so that we barely question it. It's interesting, when you look at the, again, when you look at the original discourses, not only is there a lot of emphasis on striving, there's, there's a sort of standard um, dialogue that the Buddha has oftentimes with seekers around the nature of the self. And it goes like this. Here's this seeker in front of the Buddha, and he says, so, whatever your name is, um, what you might be taking to, to be self, could be the body or consciousness or this and that, is that thing permanent or impermanent? And the person would have to say, well, it's impermanent, because everything's impermanent. And, so, and then the Buddha would say, okay, if, if something's impermanent, is it suffering or not suffering? In other words, is it, can it totally satisfy you? Or can it not totally satisfy you? Now, if it's impermanent, it can't totally satisfy you because it's not there all the time. Right? Following? Yeah. And then the Buddha would say, if this thing is suffering then, not satisfactory, if it's dukkha, how could it be the self? Okay. Now, this is interesting because we would, follow, we would trace a different line of argument. The self that a lot of seekers were looking for at the time of the Buddha was the self with a capital S, the Atman, the soul or uh, inner essence or higher self or true self or whatever. And the, so when a person was seeking that way, the Buddha would take them through that line of argument. Did you follow that? Yes? Uh, because they were actually looking for a different self. We are in a different culture. Some people are looking for the true self. Most people are struggling already with a sense of self, and it's like, how can I actually have some freedom from this personality self, which is felt as a problem? So we we come at, from a different angle. Is this making sense? Yeah. Good. Okay. Something very important as practitioners... There is a continuum, <coughs> a spectrum of the experience of the sense of self. Okay, I'll explain what I mean. In other words, the self, our self-sense, is not always the same. It doesn't always feel the same way. So, on one end of the scale, uh, you have a very built-up sense of self. Now, we usually think of that being someone having a very big ego and very grandiose, etc., but this inner critic structure, when that's up and running, and when that's really going, that's actually a very a very built-up, very marked sense of self. It's a very exaggerated sense of self. Now, it's interesting, oftentimes, a person going through that, or with a lot of that in their patterning, feels like they don't have much of sense of self. They don't have much, they don't have a self. Now, oftentimes you hear, well... Shouldn't I have a sense of self, or shouldn't this other person have a self before they let go of the self? But usually, the, it's very rare for a person not to have a sense of self. That's actually a kind of psychotic fragmentation. It's actually fairly rare. Mostly, that's referring to a sense of self that's actually quite exaggerated and quite tightly bound around negative self-imaging. Do you understand? Yes. Um, so actually, it's not that we need the self before to get rid of it. That person actually needs to let go of that self-identity, loosen that self-identity. Yeah. 
So on the one end, you get things like the inner critic, something like a tantrum. Uh, something's gone on and we're totally upset about it, totally like consumed with this thing. At that time, the, the sense of self, the felt sense of self is also quite exaggerated. It's, it's, you really feel this sense of self. Or when there's a lot of fear, you really feel the sense of self. Or someone's um, really criticizing you in, in, in a big way or something like that. Other times, uh, we might just be identifying with our story, but it's not so charged. Other times it might be that we're just quietly having a cup of tea and, and the whole sense of self is there, but it's a lot more quiet. It's less exaggerated and built up. Other times it might be um, really in nature, letting go, or in a quite peaceful meditation. It's got even more quiet, even more refined, even more light, the sense of self. Go deeper in meditation, even more light, even more refined. The whole thing, the sense of self, is moving along this continuum from very solid, very heavy, very tight, very exaggerated, very built up, to very, very, very light, refined, etc., and eventually no sense of self. You understand? As long as there's some sense of self, we want to be interested in what it feels like and what it is we're identifying with. Because a person can be sitting, very peaceful meditation, feeling like there's no self here. But it might be that we're identified with the witness, the consciousness, the awareness. You know, there's not nothing of the stories around, there's no big problem, there's no big personality present, but there's just a, a quiet, subtle, oftentimes taken for granted identification with consciousness. And then there's still a sense of self, but it's very light and very delicate. So recently, I think I think recently in Dharma circles, um, the word selfing has become a little bit popular. Some of you might may have heard it and used it, and it's it's actually quite helpful to think of it as a kind of verb. When are, is the mind selfing, and when is it not selfing? So it's selfing when it's making a big deal out of something, or there's a big storm about something, big mind storm about something, or there's a lot of ego sense around, or a lot of that inner critic. It's selfing then. But the, the danger with that is a little bit it implies, and I think people can get hold of the sense from that, that when there isn't a storm, or when there isn't a big ego thing going on, or when there isn't the inner critic, or, then I'm not selfing, and therefore there's no self and there's no problem. There's still, as long as there is a sense of a subject, in, even in the most subtle way, and an object, a world, in the most subtle way, there's still we, in this language, we could say selfing going on. And it's a spectrum, it's a continuum. Make sense? And that's really, really important because as long as there is even the lightest, most delicate, most refined sense of self, that will be the seed of dukkha, it will be the seed of uh, dissatisfaction in the moment, but also subtly in the moment, but also for, fu for future. Um, and this is important. Actually, I come remember years and years ago when I lived in America and went to an evening talk. And uh, teacher is very wonderful teacher and uh, some, someone I really love and respect. And I, I mentioned this to him. Well, it seems like there's a spectrum of self, and you know, da da da. And and he he I remember him saying, well, you know, there was a pillar between us in the room, sort of keeping what was actually a floor because we were in a basement, keeping the floor up. And um, and he said, well, you know, it's like, I see the pillar, fine, no problem. It's only when the self gets charged with identification, with roles and with this and that, that it's a problem. But I, I would really question that. I would really question that now. So, yes, we are interested in the self of the ego and all the games, you know, what's that phrase, the games people play and the ego games and the grandiosity and the hype and the uh, denigration of others, and the denigration of ourselves, and the self-critic. Yes, uh, we're interested in all that, and look, needing to look good, definitely. But we're actually interested in the whole spectrum of the self-sense, the whole spectrum. This is really, really important as practitioners. Oftentimes, on other retreats, uh, like when we do metta, practice, a person will, will write a question in a note or say or ask me or another teacher. When I do the metta and it goes well, it seems like the I is gone. So who is this may I be well? It doesn't doesn't seem to make sense. 
actually the self-sense is there, it's just much more light and much more refined. So we're not just interested in the gross sense of self. Interestingly, uh, someone asked recently with me- this is a little bit of a sidetrack. Someone asked recently with the meta, um, when I say "May I be happy, may I be peaceful," is that not reinforcing the self sense? And it's a good question, but actually, one finds that as one goes deeper into the meta, that's not the case. There's something in the quality of meta. We'll talk more about this. The quality of meta itself that softens the sense of self. It lightens and expands the sense of self. So, recently I was talking with a teacher who's very new to teaching. She's just beginning to teach her first retreats. And she was telling me about an interview she had with a, with a retreatant who was also very new to practice. And I can't remember what the retreatant was going through, but the new teacher asked the new retreatant, um, when they reported whatever it was, um, what was the sense of self like at that time? How did that affect your sense of self? And it was just, the new retreat was just like, huh? What, what do you mean? So this is not actually that obvious for non-practitioners, I would say. <laughs> it's interesting, meditating a long time, one becomes very used to, sensitive to certain, picking up on certain qualities, aspects of experience that a non-meditator would, would have very little sense of. But what we want to do is really get familiar with, this is really important, really get familiar with, watch and get familiar with that range, that whole range of the felt sense of self. So when it's a tantrum and a big deal and very exaggerated, inner critic, whatever it is, all the way through the the middling areas to when it feels much more open and expansive and and subtle and refined and spacious. In in, um, the Gelug tradition, they talk about getting used to this sense of the self as something inherently existing, getting used to this self-sense. And what they suggest is, is kind of pointing to something quite gross. So imagine that you're in a room and suddenly, or you're in a big crowd of people and someone uh, suddenly points at you and says, that guy's a jerk or he stole my whatever or something. And suddenly all these people are looking at you, blaming you for something or thinking you're an idiot. Uh, then the sense of self is usually quite prominent. Now that's quite, <laughs> ex- for most people, that's quite exaggerated. Uh, and it helps if you have, you know, if uh, through meditation this, one hasn't got familiar with the, the felt sense of self. But as I say, what we want to do is get really used to that whole spectrum. It's very important. Now, over, how long have we been here already? One day, two days. It's like ages. So at some point earlier, I said, um, it was yesterday in the talk with that Tsongkhapa quote that I put on the board. Withdrawal or ignoring or a kind of oblivion from the sense of self is not sufficient. It's not sufficient. Uh, And that's absolutely true. We need to understand the emptiness of self and look at this felt sense of self and see it as empty. But I'm going to qualify a little bit uh, that statement, and say something again about samadhi. And I would say, samadhi is actually very good uh, in lots of ways. But one of the ways is because one is totally awake and conscious, and then <coughs> getting used to, consciously used to, uh, times and inner environments when there's actually very little sense of self, or less sense of self, put it that way. So, when the samadhi begins to go deep, or at times when it, it goes deep, and you know it's, it's gonna it's gonna wave. Remember that it's gonna wave. When it goes deep, who am I when I'm not thinking so much? So a lot of the self definitions we have are actually necessarily propped up by thinking. They need quite a lot of scaffolding of thinking to sort of hold themselves in place. These elaborate self definitions we have. In the samadhi, that goes quiet, and I'm still very conscious and very present. Who am I when I'm not thinking so much? When I'm not thinking at all, perhaps. Who am I then? What's happened to that self-definition? Who am I? And some people define themselves often around their emotions and their felt emotional sense. Who am I when the emotional life gets quiet in samadhi or in equanimity? Who am I then? 
and again with samadhi or deep states of meditation occasionally the body itself can begin to dissolve or blur its boundaries and just kind of disappear a little bit who am I when the body dissolves? So consciously we're actually <coughs> learning to let go of the, the defining of the self to whatever degree, whatever degree. But that's actually very important and very, very, very helpful. Now there's a whole other aspect of the relationship with samadhi and emptiness we probably won't even get to on this retreat, but i just very briefly say something. Uh, I want to say very quickly... We typically build a sense of self and we build a sense of the world. And that's what we're going to understand, uh, move towards understanding in this retreat. We fabricate a sense of self. We fabricate a sense of the world. In samadhi, what's happening, as you go deeper and deeper in samadhi, is we do that less and less. We build the sense of self and we build the sense of the world less and less. So just to dip in and out of samadhi without understanding that process is nowhere near as helpful in terms of understanding emptiness as actually going into the samadhi and out of it and understanding how it's fabricating the sense of self and how the world, the sense of the world, is also being fabricated. There's something very deep to understand there, but I'm just throwing that out as a little tidbit, really, for now. So, as human beings, we have a range, a continuum, as I said, of the felt sense of self. We have a range of that experience of self. We also, you could say, have a range of ways, it's not really a continuum, but we, we have a range of ways of conceiving of the self. So I conceive of myself in this way or that way. And the Buddha talks a lot about this. So, for instance, with, let's, let's take three things, the body, the mind, and consciousness we could conceive of the self as being the body. The self is the body. Or we could say the self is the mind, or the self is consciousness. So the self as something like that. We could conceive of the self as something that possesses. The, the self possesses the body, or it posse- I pos- it's my mind, I possess it, or it's my consciousness. <clears throat> now when I say conceive, I'm going to talk talk in different ways a lot about what I'm talking about now and the different aspects of it. That conceiving, it could be a theory of self that I have that I can explain to other people and to myself. More often than not, it's just a way of conceiving that I don't really even notice when I'm doing it. So I talk about my body, my mind, my this. I conceive in those moments and I feel the self to be the possessor. So it's not a big elaborate theory. I'm not even consciously conceiving. Do you understand? Um, but it's important because they are conceptions of self. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I talked about a range of experience, felt sense of the self, and then there's a, a range too of the ways that we can think about the self or view what the self is, conceive of what the self is. Okay. So I'm going to run through the list and then I'll explain something. So we can conceive of the self as as the mind, let's take the mind right now, self is the mind, I am the mind. Or I could say the self possesses the mind somehow. It's like, it's my mind. We often talk about my mind is, is this. Or, or we could say the self is in the mind somewhere. There's a little, you know, homunculus in the, in the mind somewhere. Or we could say, uh, in a more mystical way, the mind is in the self and then it's a more of a big cosmic self of cosmic awareness, or a big capital S self or something. Or God, we're in God or something. But th- those are four ways of conceiving. What I was saying is that sometimes a person conceives deliberately that way, like they hold a certain doctrine or religious theory or whatever, or view. And sometimes it's just we do that habitually without even realizing that we're doing it, and without uh, we think we're not being... Like I don't go in for a conceiving. I don't. I don't have any theories about anything. But we do it anyway. Yeah. So the conceiving of self can get very sophisticated, actually. And in Buddhist teaching, it gets very sophisticated. Um, 
So, what's quite common, and if you've been around insight meditation circles enough, you will hear something like, the self isn't anything real. What the self is, is the continuum, the moment-to-moment continuum of the uh, components of mind and body, what's called the five aggregates, we'll go into this tomorrow. In other words, the continuum of arising of um, consciousness and, and experience and, and feeling and perception, etc. And you often hear that as a teaching put out. That there isn't a self in terms of a, a solid self in the way we think about it. What it is is the continuum. Or, again, in Buddhist teachings, you hear the self is awareness. You, you are, uh, it's be the witness. You are the knowing and... Uh, be the knowing, and all, all kinds of stuff like that. Or, the self is actually the result of an infinite web of conditions coming together and giving rise to the self in the moment. So every all my personal history, everything I've read, all the music I've listened to, all the teaching I've had, all the interactions, all coming together, and the self is that. Now, some of these conceptions are very useful, very useful, and they have a degree of truth to them. And they're around very much even in Buddhist circles. Um, but the Buddha would actually reject them all. Reject them all. And reject even notions of the self as a oneness, a cosmic oneness. The self is actually, it's all one. That's also uh, not not endorsed by, by the Buddha. Um, why? Because all of them have implicit in them the notion of inherent existence. All of them are kind of saying, this is the true nature, this is the actual way the self is. And that is what the Buddha is objecting to. That is what the deep deep Dharma teachings are objecting to. So this is what we're after kind of seeing through. It's not that, as to say what I said at the beginning, it's not that we're wanting to get rid of the sense of self, or the sense of I. It's only we want to get rid of uh, the idea or the belief of the self, the I, as something uh, self-existent, as something uh, established, we say established from its own side, like I talked about yesterday, inherently existing. So, you know, there is thinking. In a way, we can't say... There can't, we can say, there can't, at one level, we could say, there can't be thinking without a thinker. Can't be thinking without a thinker. What we typically do, though, is say, that implies, we have a sense, a felt sense of it implying that um, the I that thinks, the self that thinks, is permanent and independently existing. We say again, it's imputed on the thinking. We'll go into this more. So, backtrack to the beginning of the talk. I'm, I'm going to have to leave some out. That's okay. Backtrack to the beginning of the talk, and said so sometimes it's actually useful to see, to talk, to conceive, to view in terms of self. But are there other ways of seeing? And yes, there are. And we're interested in other ways of seeing. It's partly through the other ways of seeing that we begin shaking up the whole view of self and actually freeing ourselves. So. One way that we're going to go into at the, probably the end of this next week, I'm not sure, is actually going deliberately looking to find this self, hunting for it, trying to find the self, and actually realizing it's unfindable. Cannot find the self. I feel like I have it when I go looking for it, I can't find it. And yet it functions, yet here I am, talking, uh, going to sleep, eating, etc. It functions. And somehow this sense of self is somehow here. Obviously it's not, you know, it's not uh, over here, my sense of self. It's functioning, but when I look for it, I can't find it. So we're going to go on to that as a specific approach to practice later. One One of the practices I'm going to introduce tomorrow is what I call... Anatta practice. So it's learning to not identify. 
typically, I'll explain this tomorrow, typically we see things and we, we uh, see experience, we experience experience and we identify with it. I have a thought, it's me, or it's my thought. I have an emotion, it's me, or it's my, my emotion. My body is me or mine. Everything is me or mine. And one learns to just not do that. Just look at something and see it as not me, not mine. I'll explain tomorrow. I'm going to throw a little one out. It's just a little one, and it may or may not be helpful to different people at different times. But when you feel unhappy, in a moment of unhappiness or a period of unhappiness, <coughs> and you're in practice, what would it be? Try, if it's possible at times, to just not define yourself, to just drop, let go of any kind of definition. You actually see the unhappiness is dependent on defining yourself. And just experiment with letting go of any sense of definition of yourself. Another one. And this, this is actually one of the things that made, made the Buddha such a genius, one of his sort of strokes of genius, if you like. Looking in terms of actions rather than self-view. I'll explain what I mean. So typically we look a lot in terms of self, we interpret a lot in terms of self-view. Um, but the Buddha, uh, in, in, when he walked out of the palace in the mythological story, he walked out and he encountered a world of seekers and teachers and this and that. And most people were hunting for this self with the capital S. That was what was going to do it. That was the idea. If you found this soul, self, higher existence, uh, Atman, whatever, that was what was going to do it. And the Buddha kind of had a look at that and thought, I wonder, I wonder if, if I have to be locked into that way of seeing. And he kind of took a step back from the whole scene and he said, what if I just look in terms of actions, outer and inner actions and movement, mental actions as well, that lead to suffering and ones that don't lead to suffering. And I actually just put aside this whole question of self. I just put that aside and I look in terms of actions. And that was quite a radical, uh, a radical move. Let's take something like uh, guilt. Okay. So something we've done in the past or said or not done or not said. And it haunts us in the present. We feel bound up with that. We feel the mind keeps going back there and blaming oneself about it. Okay, we feel guilty, and somehow we're locked in that in that uh, cycle of guilt, that circle of guilt. What is it to actually look at? Look at it not in terms of self, but in terms of actions. Take the self-view out of things, in, in the past, but also in the present. And look, uh, instead of blaming the self for something, look in terms of what action do I want to do in the future based on that. What action will lead to suffering, what action will lead to freedom. Taking the self-view out of things. That's a practice, and I'm aware of saying that it sounds like, well, it doesn't sound very sexy as I say it, I can't, it doesn't, you know. Uh, it's a practice, like all of this, and one gets used to a different mode of looking at uh, life, looking at it in terms of actions rather than in terms of self-views. And the more we practice that, the, the freer we can uh, become. When we do this with self, we'd also do it with other. We see someone else doing something, uh, you know, that's not good or whatever, and we make a definition about themselves. We make a self-view of the other. We make an other view, versus just seeing that that action was not helpful for themselves and for others. Looking in terms of actions of self, uh, rather than in terms of self and other view. Okay, I'm going to leave one for tomorrow, but the last one I want to mention today, and it's one I'll come back to anyway. <clears throat> has to do with seeing the nature of the self as a dependent arising. So, 
If I pay attention to this sense of self in my life, and coming and going, getting stronger, getting weaker, getting more light, more heavy, what I see is, and, and we need to notice this, that when there is a lot of clinging or a lot of wrestling with something, either an inner thing or an outer thing, and something in our world, inner or outer, has become a big deal, or we are making something a big deal, either through thought, oftentimes we make things a big deal through thinking a lot about them, we build it up, as I say, with thought, or just in our relationship, our reaction to it. When that thing, when something is a big deal, the self-sense is strong. When there's clinging to something, either uh, wanting it or pushing it away, the, the corresponding felt sense of self is, is built up, is strong. Does this make sense? Yeah. Um, and of course, we can do that with meditation. We can do it with meditation. You know, we make a big deal of our progress or so-called progress spiritually in meditation, and then the sense of self gets built around that. This morning, in the question answer people, we were talking about how the self view gets built. And it, it's a, to say something is built is also meaning it's a dependent arising. Dependent arising. How does it get built? By focusing on something in particular. By drawing out something in particular from the inner or outer experience. Drawing it out from the totality of impressions. We draw it out, we wrestle with it, we focus on it, we make it a big deal. Uh, whatever it is, and then the self-view gets built on that thing. So to this morning we're talking about, if I draw out all the times, all the places where I'm not doing well enough, where I'm not trying hard enough, where I'm falling short, then that is building the self-view. The drawing out and what I'm drawing out builds the kind of self-view. But whenever I draw out anything, I will build some kind of self-view. And then based on that self-view, my perception will lean towards and incline towards drawing out something in line with that self-view. Do you understand? Mm. It's, it's, it's a vicious cycle. It's mm. reinforcing itself. And it's almost like it hap- it's not even that it happens so much in time. It's kind of, it goes round and round like two sides of a whirlpool. So based on the self-view, I, I focus on certain particulars that reinforce, let's say, my, neg- my negative self-view, my shortcomings, my not trying enough, my this or my that, my depression. But also based on other conditioning from the past, cultural, con- all kinds of conditioning. And, and the vicious cycle gets, gets established. So just, just to end now... We are learning ways of looking, and I I said this already at some point, that's what, to me, insight meditation really is. It's learning ways of looking that that bring freedom. To me, that's a very nice definition of what insight meditation is. Learning different ways of looking that bring freedom. So, yes, I can look with the self, and and the, the language of the self, and the view of the self, and yes, I can learn, and this is something that most people can't do, most non-practitioners can't do, I can learn to let go of the self and look in, in some of these different ways and others will go into. Learn to look not in terms of the self. Different ones at different times bring freedom, but something in that movement, uh, different ways of looking and the different kinds of letting go of the self, I actually learn... Uh, the conclusion, the insight that I draw is that the self lacks inherent existence. And that's what I really want to get at deep down. Begins to get clear uh, deeper and deeper and sort of more and more fully what it means. And I know it sounds puzzling when I say it exists but it doesn't exist and all that. Uh, and it lacks inherent existence. But that begins to get clear through this movement of different ways of looking that we engage in as practitioners.
when that as that gets clear, uh, something I keep saying something very beautiful about this balance comes out. And, uh, it's like the self exists conventionally, exists as a dependent arising, and it doesn't inherently exist. So we can talk uh, of the self-functioning and doing stuff, and we can talk in terms of cause and effect and actions in the world and the results. Again, an, another quote from, quote from Nagarjuna, actually wrote many uh, texts on emptiness. He says, relying on actions and effects within knowing this emptiness of phenomena is even more amazing than the amazing and even more marvellous than the marvellous. There's something very, very beautiful in there that we can, through, through this manoeuvring that we'll be learning to do, we, we actually, it, it comes clear and freedom comes from that. Let's, let's have a minute of quiet together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.